the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. 653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. I want to give a shout out to Duffy. Duffy, I was very wrong. Rebuked. Rightfully so. Uh, 22nd Amendment after FDR says you can't run for a third term, right? And the rule is you can't be a president for more than 10 years, consecutive or non-consecutive. I don't know what I was thinking, Duffy. I apologize. Thanks for being Johnny on the spot. So you could serve 10 years though. So if you were VP and uh, the last two years of that term you served as president, so the president resigns or passes away or whatever, you can serve those two years and then you can run for two more terms, but you can't do more than 10. Uh, Thanks, Duffy. Thanks for being there. I don't know why I was thinking uh, the other way. Um, all right, so I want to uh, talk here about Alfred Veneger. Why? Why Alfred Veneger? So this is a great example of the science is settled. If you ever talk to someone about global warming or whatever who tells you the science is settled, tell them this story of Alfred Veneger. It's similar to a story we've shared many times about Semmelweis. This is my favorite one, Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a doctor in the 1850s who was wondering why so many women were dying after childbirth. It wasn't from childbirth. It was after childbirth. And no one had any idea why. And they had their ideas, but no one had any clue. So some of us said, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should wash our hands. And the doctor's like, oh, please. And he said, well, I don't know. I mean, we perform autopsies on dead bodies in the morning, and then we walk down the hall and we deliver a baby, and we never wash our hands. Like, maybe we should wash our hands before we do that. And you don't want to know what the scientific consensus was at the time? That Semmelweis was a superstitious Jew, and they kicked him out of the medical field. He was the director of a hospital. They kicked him out of the hospital, and he ended up dying from a nervous breakdown like a year or two later. Decades, decades went by. Until other doctors started saying, hmm, maybe he was on to something. Decades until they started washing their hands. The science was settled. It had nothing to do with germs. And who knows how many women died because the science was settled. So there, here's another, another story along those lines. So Alfred Wenger was a meteorologist around 1900. And he was in Greenland on an expedition. Now, at this time, uh, similar to what we were just talking about with South America, 
the Arctic and the Antarctic were some of the final domains that have yet to be discovered. So he goes up to Greenland, and it's, it's 1906, and he's looking at uh, an ice cap, like a little iceberg that, uh, that, that broke up. Right, so it fractured. And he's looking at all the, the pieces floating in the water, and they looked like puzzle pieces as they were, they were drifting apart. And he's looking at the pieces, and he goes, hmm, I wonder if something similar happened to the continents. Right? Like the way there was, it was one piece of ice and then it broke apart into a couple pieces and they were kind of floating apart. And he looked at it and he's like, oh, I wonder if the continents kind of... So he goes home and he looks at an atlas and he says, oh, well, look at that. South America and Africa, they, they fit pretty nicely snug up next to each other if you put them next to each other. And he literally, he wrote a letter to his fiance saying, hey, did you ever notice that the continents kind of fit together if you put them all together? Now, this is 1906. Today, every kid, every eight-year-old can look at an atlas and come to the same conclusion, but no one had ever thought that before him. I want to play a, a bit of this video here. The, the voices you're going to hear, one is a professor from Harvard. The woman's a professor from Harvard. One of the guys is a professor at University of Utah, and then another guy is an author of a biography about Alfred Venegar. So take in a little bit of this. He would write a paper in 1912, and he said, I think everybody will really be happy. And of course, everyone wasn't really happy. Everyone became very unhappy. There was a almost universal rejection of his theories to begin with. Here's the problem. Scientists are very suspicious of fundamental novelty. He was regarded as an outsider by the geoscience community because he had no academic credentials in that field. And so he was not considered qualified to make any statements in that field. What he was doing that was so different, though, was drawing together multiple lines of evidence, not just geology, but vegetation and paleontology. The botanical people responded very positively because it explained the distribution of plants and animals over the world. So he would write a book in 1915. People said, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. And then he wrote another book in 1920. He comes up with the name Pangaea. And then he wrote another one in 1922. And he kept fixing it and fixing it and fixing it. It's one thing to think of an idea, and it's another thing to work it out for 20 or 30 years. Hmm. A couple things here. Scientists are humans. Thinking, wow, Slater, that's, that's really deep. But seriously, when, when people talk about science being this objective, foolproof study, they forget that science is performed by scientists. And scientists are humans with their own faults, and biases, and perspectives, and blind spots, and all the rest. So when Venegar proposed his theory that all the, con all the continents were once connected and then broke apart, the group of scientists known as geologists rejected it. Why? He wasn't one of them. <laughs> right? It wasn't because he was wrong or he didn't have enough evidence. It's just because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't in the group. And they were jealous. They were exclusive. They were elitist. They were human. So he ended up going on another expedition to Greenland. This is in 1930. And it was there where he died 
in the freezing cold. That was 1930 when he died. It wasn't until the 70s when geologists said, hmm, um, turns out he was right. So sorry about that, buddy. 60 years, 60 years until geologists finally came around and said, oh yeah, that guy, he was, he was probably right about that. You kidding me? 60 years. But global warming science, settled. No, absolutely settled. No doubt about it. 100% settled. Come on. People in 30, 60 years are going to look back at us the same way we look back at the geologists who rejected vinegar, saying, what, what, how could you guys be so foolish? So there's another example of, well, the science was settled. Of course, the continents were never connected to each other. It's absurd. The science is settled. And you're not a geologist anyway. What do you know? Um, that just, here's, here's all the evidence I have. Oh, the science is already settled. 60 years later. Oh, yeah, science isn't so settled. I'm sorry. Now we got tons of examples like this today. So new study the other day concluded that lowering your salt intake does not reduce your blood pressure. So this is the, the latest and the longest study ever done on this. And turns out that those who consume the most salt, by today's standards, dangerously high amounts of salt have the lowest blood pressure. <laughs> oh, science, the salt science is settled. Everyone, uh, uh, no, we know 100%, uh, you got less salt. Everyone needs less salt. To the point where Michael Bloomberg, mayor of New York City, right? He banned salt shakers on restaurants. At restaurants, no salt. Can't have salt, gotta lower salt. Too many heart attacks, gotta lower the salt intake. And now, now they're saying, well, actually, salt's good for you. Well, the latest theory is that it's hereditary. And some people do need to lower their salt intake and some people it has no effect. And that these one-size-fits-all recommendations don't work. But the, the grand conclusion of eat less salt means lower blood pressure. Not true. We've talked before about some uh, researcher in the 70s said fat is bad for you. You don't want to eat fat. Fat is what makes you fat. And there was another guy who said at the same time in the 70s was like, oh, uh, no, it's not fat. It's sugar. But the government went with the fat one. In fact, the fat guy, I don't know what, how, how, if he was fat or not, but the guy who said that fat was the problem and they ran with it. And that's when they made the food pyramid and they put carbs, sugar on the bottom. Oh, you got to have 20 servings of carbohydrates every single day. Eat more sugar. That was the government line. Eat more sugar. And now sugar's the problem. Oh, but I thought the science was settled. The food pyramid. And the food pyramid's all wrong. One last example. I just read this. And this is all this week. I read an article yesterday that uh, rice, you know when you sprain your ankle and the doctor will tell you rice, rest, ice, elevate, and compress rice? Um, now they're saying, well, no, that's probably not good to do. <laughs> and the rest and ice part may actually slow the healing process. So if you sprain your ankle or something, you don't want to rest it. You kind of want to move it around and you don't want to ice it. Uh, that makes it worse. Oh, but climate change, pff, rock solid. Don't question. You're a denier. You're basically a Nazi. Oh, and uh, can you give Al Gore $15 trillion over the next 20 years so he can solve it? Yeah, I, I don't think so. one 900 Just again, remember Alfred Venegar took 60 years before the scientific community was like, oh yeah, no, maybe you were right. When scientists say the science is settled, that is uh, particularly dangerous. Notice no one ever says, 
the science is settled about you know e equals mc squared no no one question no one no one says oh gravity yeah the science is settled and it's only about controversial political issues where they say the science is settled and when someone says that some red flags should go up because it's probably not mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word mike slater on the blaze radio network Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on at Berkeley. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm like, <laughs> these universities, like I, I feel sad for everyone there. Like the whole, the kids there bore me. The, the, it's the adults that bothers me. And whatever they're doing on these campuses across the country, they're just burying themselves in irrelevance. And honestly, the sooner the entire system just implodes, the better for everyone. Jack is six and a half months old. Uh, just yesterday, he clapped for the first time. He claps. It's the cutest thing in the world. But I'm hoping by the time he's 18 that this is, this doesn't work like this anymore. There's no more college. We can just do it online or whatever. Um, so we've talked a ton about colleges. You hear everyone talk all about it. I want to play some clips here of Ronald Reagan and how he dealt with all of this when he was the governor of California. So I got a couple clips here I want to play. The first one here is when he announced his candidacy for governor in 1964. He made like this 45-minute video. And uh, this is just one part of it. But this was the beginning-ish of some of the nonsense uh, at Berkeley. And he made it a part of his campaign. And and here he is again in his opening uh, announcement, 1470. Back at the turn of the century... We embarked on a master plan of education. It was truly a bipartisan effort above political rivalry and differences. Its principal architects were a Democrat assemblywoman and a Republican assemblyman. Believing in that plan, Californians taxed themselves at a rate higher than any other Americans to build a great university. But it takes more than dollars in stately buildings. Or do we no longer think it necessary to teach self-respect, self-discipline, and respect for law and order. Will we allow a great university to be brought to its knees by a noisy dissident minority? Will we meet their neurotic vulgarities with vacillation and weakness? Or will we tell those entrusted with administering the university we expect them to enforce a code based on decency, common sense, and dedication to the high and noble purpose of that university? That they will have the full support of all of us. Where where are the adults today? Where are the adults today? Where are the adults today who are going to step up and say that? Right? Enough with your neurotic vulgarities. <laughs> right? And talk to the adults there. Let's say, listen, would you start running this school with a little decency and common sense? Just get, get it together. Don't cave 
to the noisy dissidents with, and their neurotic vulgarities with your weakness. Now, this is when he was announcing his run for governor. Now I want to play some clips here from when he was governor. Um, one of these clips you may have heard before. It's, it's a clip from a History Channel documentary. And I've, I've heard it a million times. And I was like, man, I want to hear more from that. I want to hear the whole thing. And I did the best I could to find different clips from different shows and things uh, of that same press conference he was giving. But I can't. I wish I could just find the whole thing. And I'll keep looking. But in the meantime, here are some, uh, some uh, clips of him in 1969 talking about Berkeley. And listen how fired up the governor got. 1471. Suppose that the issue is that on the campuses, you who are adults, you who are entrusted with those young people and their guidance, have a responsibility to make it plain to them from the very beginning that you yourselves do not tolerate the kind of conduct that has led to the burning of Wheeler Hall, that has led to two murders on the campus of UCLA. You've created an atmosphere on the campus where listen. no one wants to listen. No, you no are a liar. Listen to. Now, don't you talk about political speeches. Don't you make a political speech of that kind. And you know, it's funny because... Are you? Will you let me finish my I would like to hear who you are. I this gentleman was... Okay? I would, happy now. You happy bet I'm happy, and you bet you won't right. say anything that will surprise me. And I'd love to see you discuss this openly before the people of California. I am discussing it know, openly. And we'll know that you can't run a university by bayonet. You cannot do it that way. If you would allow yourself to listen, you would have a lot of people who would be showing some compassion, some interest in nonviolence, some interest in order. If you would speak out against the use of firearms and buck if you will, that 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 this the people responsible for that should be removed. If you would say Mr. that Wapsie. instead of example of cutting down the escalation, you can bet we'd have a lot Mr. of Mr. Wapsi, when were any of you when did any of you appear before the students? When did any of you stand up at Sproul Hall on Thursday over and beg them not to go down again. there? Over and over Those people told you for days in advance that if the university sought to go ahead with that construction, they were going to physically destroy the university. Now, why did you negotiate many times? Negotiate? What is to negotiate? What is? Well, the university is a public institution. That's right. But the university, its own community, and for the community of Berkeley that live around it. All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. Boom, and he gets up and walks out of the press conference right with that lie, which is pretty bald. I love the clip before that, though. You got the reporter, whoever he is, saying, hey, man, what, what's the deal? What's the deal? It's all this violence. Where, uh, you know, if you would just stop with that, then everyone would be okay. And Reagan's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where were you before these students decided to burn down the building? Where are you telling all the students to calm down a couple weeks ago, which if you did, then we wouldn't need to be calling in the National Guard to keep, uh, keep the peace. Where the heck were you when that when they were starting these riots and protests? Nowhere, which is what got us here in the first place. So get out of here. You got pretty fired up there. It's pretty awesome. All right, one last quick clip. This is him in uh, 1966. It began a year ago when the so-called free speech advocates, who in truth have no appreciation for freedom, were allowed to assault and humiliate the symbol of law and order of policemen on the campus. And that was the moment when the ringleaders should have been taken to the scruff of the neck and thrown out of the university once and for all. And that is Ann Coulter. Remember, there's a whole backstory here, but 
Ann Coulter was going to speak on Berkeley. They said no. And then the school said, okay, you can come back, but here are the demands you have to, that, that, that we require. And one is you have to, you can only speak in the afternoon. You can't tell anyone where it's going to be until the last minute because we don't want the protesters to shut down the building and all this stuff. Like, give me a break. And Ann Coulter said, you know what? Fine, fine. I'll meet your stupid demands. But here's my stipulation. Anyone who heckles my speech is expelled from the school. Anyone who heckles me, tries to shut it down, causes trouble, they're expelled. And that's when the university said, no, 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 we can't have that. Constant caving from the adults. College campuses across the country, no self-discipline to go back to Reagan's, uh, you know, announcing his run for president. No self-discipline, no decency, no common sense, no respect for law and order. And we wonder why this is happening. Now, it's one thing for the kids to behave this way. Now, obviously, they're old enough to be in the military, right? They're adults. And we should expect more out of them, yes. But the actual adult, like 50, 60, 70, the ones running the show, they should be held to much higher standards. But they're even more pathetic than the kids. one 888 But no one, well, maybe Trump can start speaking up a little more like that on this. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. later one last thing on berkeley <laughs> we'll, we'll put that put it aside uh, i want to echo jonah goldberg here and, and share this just so you when, when you hear this you can cringe uh just the same as as i do uh whenever i hear a reporter someone on the tv say that berkeley university of california berkeley is the home of the free speech movement No, no, it's not. What are you, what are you talking about? No, real quick. Can I share one thing about you about Berkeley before we go on? Oh, let me share this. This is crazy. So this is just a good story about how California is just a money pit and everything's totally out of control here. And every the bureaucracies are crazy, all the rest. So the university of California system, we have uh, three tiers of our higher education system. We have the UC system, which is at the top. And then we have the Cal state system, which is the middle. And then the community college system, which is uh, on the bottom tier, right? So the UC system is currently run by Janet Napolitano. And there was an audit done of the UC system. And the auditor came back, the state auditor came back and said, I've been doing this for 17 years. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. She said the whole thing was such a gong show. It was so unprofessional. They, they, they were hiding information. They were stealing things. It was like horrible. She said it was the horrible, horrible experience auditing the UC system. But check this out. So in the UC system, uh, let me see if I can remember these numbers off the top of my head. There's in the president's office. So this is just the administration in the president's office. 1,667 employees. So we'll round up a little bit. 1,700 employees just in the president's office. 1,700 has a budget of $655 million. Now, there's 10 UC schools, 10 of them in the state, and there's 250,000 students. Okay? So now, just to compare how crazy that is, the Cal State system, they don't have 
1,700 employees. They have 700 for twice as many campuses and twice as many students. So they have twice as many campuses, twice as many students, but basically half the employees and a third of the budget. Now, this is getting complicated. It's hard to talk numbers over the radio. Let me, let me simplify it even more. I compared this to Florida, okay? The Florida state system. Florida state system has 10, uh, no, 12. I think 12 universities, which is more than Cal- California has. California has 10. Florida has 12. Florida has about 100 to 200,000 more students than, the, than in their system than California does. California, again, in the, just, this is just the president's office, 1,700 employees. In the Florida state president's office, you want to know how many employees they have? 64. <laughs> so California, 1,700. Florida, 64 employees for more campuses and more students. And the budget, California, this president's office budget, 655 million. In Florida, eight. Eight million. So for one percent of the budget and a fraction of the number of employees, Florida, they're able to take care of more campuses with more students than in California. Right? So California, way more money, way more employees for way less work. Incredible. Yet still gotta raise tuition. Oh, gotta waste a lot of money, gotta raise taxes, gotta raise tuition. Give me a break. You guys are so corrupt. All right, anyway, got off topic. That's more of a California story. But just put that in your back pocket. So anyway, back to Berkeley. So Berkeley, uh, oh yeah, it's the home of the free speech movement. And people point that out because, oh, look how ironic. We have this, uh, you know, people shutting down speech at a place where uh, it was the birth of the free speech movement. No, it was not. that's, That's like saying Berkeley is the home of books. What are you talking about? So I want to quote Jonah Goldberg. He says, Demosthenes, the Athenian uh, rhetorician, the speaker, the, the, the Greek speaker and champion of liberty, pointed out around 355 BC that the residents of Athens were free to praise Sparta, but the Spartans were banned from praising Athens. 1689, the British passed a law guaranteeing freedom of speech in parliament. 1689, a century later, French revolutionaries incorporated into law the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which established free speech as a universal right. Two years later, the Americans ratified the First Amendment, which guarantees that the state shall not infringe on the right to free speech. Roughly Roughly a century and a half later, 1948, the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says that everyone has the right to freedom of expression and opinion. And I mentioned this all, Jonah Goldberg says, I mentioned this all because every time I hear or read about the pathetic state of affairs at Berkeley, journalists and other commentators insist on pointing out the irony that all of this is happening where the free speech movement was born. No, the movement for free speech is thousands of years old and runs like a deep river across the landscape of Western civilization. Think, I mean, think, think about it. It's, just a, it's a funny example of how people say things without thinking. What a funny thing to even say. Berkeley's the, the home of the free speech movement. 
So this was in the 1960s, right? There were a lot of colleges in the 1960s. Did they not? First of all, a lot of colleges in the 60s that didn't have the National Guard called in on them. Did, did they not have the freedom to speak? Of course they did. People could say anything. From 1776 to 1960, colleges existed where you could say things. Right? I mean, you could always say, I mean, it's not like it was, there was, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't speak until Berkeley came around. The Berkeley protesters. Oh, now finally we have the freedom of speech. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't know how to put that. It's like, that, that's so silly. The only thing I can think of is it, it comes from people who want to lift Berkeley up as someplace that's important. That's, that's the only thing I can think where that comes from. Right, we got to lift Berkeley up as something important in order to make the opinion of the students there today important. Right, so, so we got to create some sort of historical importance so that we'll listen to what them and what's happening there when they're really not important at all. They're not, this is not. I got an example here of how vapid. These college kids are this. This to me is the perfect metaphor for the depth of the protesting college student of today and of the sixties, eight Yale graduate students, eight Yale graduate students have started a hunger strike in front of the uh, president of, of the university's house. And they're protesting for better union benefits. Right, so they're going on a hunger strike. They're not going to eat, and they're handing out flyers to people who come by. And the flyer says it says a bunch of things, but one of the sentences is, "We invite you to visit us. Instead of eating your lunch, sit with us and lift our spirits. When one of us cannot continue, come take our place." Huh? It's a symbolic humber, hunger strike. This is a symbolic hunger strike. You know, the kind where you can still eat. It's the kind of hunger strike where you eat when you're hungry. Which is kind of like me in 17 minutes when the show's over. So I guess I'm on a hunger strike until I eat again. What is like that is a perfect example of how millennials and how academic people want the benefits of suffering without any actual suffering. <laughs> right? They want they want praise me for going on a hunger strike. Oh, I'm I'm not I'm not actually going to go on a hunger strike. But but tell me how wonderful and brave I am for going on a hunger strike. But just so we're clear, like I'm not really doing hunger strike. They want all the praise of Gandhi without having to do any of the things that Gandhi did that made him deserving of praise. They want to be Martin Luther King Jr. without the intellectual or spiritual foundation of Martin Luther King Jr. They want all the credit without doing anything significant. Gandhi said he would fast unto death. That's what he said. Those are his words. I will fast unto death. And some of the people that joined him in hunger strikes did. They would they hunger strike for 60, 80 days. I will fast unto death. These college kids are fasting unto their hungry. <laughs> I think they're going to go grab a bite to eat 
and then come back and do it again. <laughs> what a joke. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. So when you see these college kids and their their grievances, uh, just just think of that story. The symbolic hunger strike. <laughs> All right, I want to come back. We'll uh, we'll end on a nice note here, well, inspirational note with a story of. Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you who. That's the point of the story. It's next on the Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, I'm glad you were here. Thanks for uh, spending some time together. Let's end on a nice note here. I want to end up with this little story here. True story about a young boy grew up in a poor home in the Midwest. His family, they were farmers and then uh, struggling business owners. Business never really went well. And this young man was 16 years old and he wanted for Christmas more than anything a pair of leather boots, but not just any leather boots, leather boots with metal toes. The old steel toed boots had to have them. Absolutely had to have them. I imagine it's like out of Wayne's world when he's looking at the guitar in the window. You will be mine. Yes, you will be mine. Except he was 16. He didn't have any money. So he went to ask his parents, but he was smart. He's like, listen, I can't just go ask my parents for boots. They're not going to give me boots. I got to come up with a good story. I got to come up with a story about why, why, what's in it for my parents. It's an investment. So he's like, oh, I got it. He delivered papers. And he made the pitch to his parents. Mom, dad, these shoes will help me deliver papers faster, especially in the snow. And I'll be a better paper delivery boy and make more money. We'll see, son that promising i don't know had to wait all the way to christmas morning sure enough under the tree there there they are pair of leather steel toed boots oh baby walked around in these boots proud as punch loved them never took them off slept in them now he's 16 years old what would a 16 year old boy do with a pair of steel toed boots especially Went around other boys. It's very simple. Kick things. So he's with some friends, and he noticed a piece of ice in the middle of the street. Now, a normal person would see that ice and just keep on walking. But a normal person doesn't have a pair of steel-toed boots. Because basically, he has invincible feet. I mean, he's, he's like a superhero. I got invincible feet. I got steel-toed boots. Are you kidding? I can kick anything. So with invincible feet, a 16-year-old boy can't resist the temptation of kicking a piece of ice. So he runs up to it, winds up, kicks that piece of ice absolutely as hard as he possibly could. The sharpest pain he's ever felt in his entire life shoots up his leg, up his side, up his whole body. In this piece of ice was a horseshoe. 
with a giant nail sticking out of it, which went right through his boot and right into his big toe. He falls on the ground screaming for help. Of course, his friends run away. (laughs) They run away. His friends bail on him. 20 minutes, he's on the ground screaming. Someone finds him. Pick him up. They bring him to the doctor. They get the nail out. Hurts just thinking about it. And they lay him in bed. Now he's 16. Back then, when you're 16, it's time to make some life decisions. Today, when you're 35, it's time to make life decisions. But back then, when you were 16, it's time to figure out what you're going to do with your life. So college was out of the question. His family didn't make enough money. And... Doctor, lawyer, I don't know. He wasn't a good student, even if he did have the money, going to school to be something like that. So what is he going to do? He had two weeks to think about it because he couldn't move. (laughs) So when he was in bed, he thought about the things, what what do I do that make people happy? What do I do that makes people happy? and, And where do I have the most fun? I wasn't at school, but... Down the street from his house, there were some children's art classes. When he healed up, he decided, I'm going to be a cartoonist. This young boy's name was Walt Disney. A rusty nail in the toe was what it took for Walt Disney to decide to be a cartoonist. And I wonder what would have happened to him if it wasn't for that rusty nail, if it weren't for that difficult time in his life, which gave him the opportunity to stop and think. And I think how quickly we go through life without stopping and thinking, like Walt had to do at that moment. And I also think about how much we avoid having a rusty nail stuck in our toe. But maybe it's those times that also give us the most clarity. So if you have a toe stuck in uh, a nail stuck in your toe right now, maybe you can use it to provide some clarity in your life. Like You're Walt. listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.